As COVID-19 cases worldwide approach 3 million, a massive number of us are under shelter-in-place orders. In the U.S., unrest is growing as people struggle with the pain of staying home, losing income, watching the economy crumble. Political divides threaten to tear us even further apart just when we need each other the most. I'm Ben Irwin, and this is the Love Anyway podcast. As much as this hurts, and make no mistake, it does hurt. As much as we miss our friends and the events we'd be attending right now. As much as we long to return to the life we knew. Our choices in this moment matter. Maybe more than they ever did. We aren't just social distancing to protect ourselves. We're making these sacrifices to keep the most vulnerable among us. The elderly, the immunocompromised, those with underlying health issues, essential workers, and those without access to medical care, healthy, safe, and alive. The choices we make in this moment could mean life or death for someone else. For members of our preemptive love team around the world, this threat is anything but hypothetical. So we decided to ask some of them to share why they are staying home and exactly who you are helping when you do the same. These are their stories. Lindsay Pruitt-Hornbaker works on our grants team and lives in Iowa. She stays home for the baby she's expecting very soon. For a little while, this was one of the most joyful seasons of my life. Last fall, my wife and I found out we were expecting our first baby. I was growing a healthy little girl due in early summer. But then things shifted quickly. When the novel coronavirus began its spread in the U.S., we had lots of questions and fears, and very few answers or pieces of hopeful news. Not even healthcare practitioners know exactly what the effect of COVID-19 is on a pregnant person or a baby in utero. We only know that pregnancy puts a person at higher risk for contagious disease. I was told by my own care providers to be extra cautious, to self-isolate, and to know that things might change quickly. Now this season is a little scarier. As the virus continues to spread, it has become more and more clear that my family can't survive this alone. My wife and I can stay home to protect our baby, and we can cancel our upcoming baby shower and ask for family and friends to check in via phone. But we have to trust that when one of us has to go out to buy groceries, no one else in the store is carrying a mild or asymptomatic version of the illness. And we have to rely on our community to practice social distancing to keep themselves healthy so the hospital doesn't become too crowded. And we have to deal with the possibility that there won't be enough personal protective equipment for our midwives and our nurses when it's time for our baby to come. If things get worse, as predicted, we have to prepare for a birth that doesn't include any family. That may not even include my wife due to health and safety concerns. We are scared and we are grieving, but we're really hopeful that our community will recognize that practicing social distancing is the best way to belong to each other right now. Diana Ostrike works with faith-based partners who support our work. She's a former Army medic, a sexual assault nurse, and she's about to become a first-time author. She stays home for the immunocompromised, including her husband, a doctor, and one of their children. My favorite person in the world, my husband, has asthma. He is super dad on the weekends, making pancakes for our kids. And on weekdays, he flies out the door to go to work as a doctor. He knows his risk of contracting coronavirus. He understands his own underlying respiratory condition and the fear of bringing it home to his family, including our son who also has asthma. What he doesn't know 
is whether people are containing the spread or are contributing to his risk of catching the disease. When you stay home, you protect my family. You protect the millions of healthcare workers we all rely on now more than ever. These brave doctors and nurses and lab technicians, they are dads and moms, and they too have underlying conditions and children at risk, but they still go to work. We can't end the pandemic overnight, but we can give our healthcare workers confidence that their communities are championing their safety, that they can count on us to do our part, just as they are tirelessly doing theirs. Erin Wilson, our senior field editor and the usual host of this podcast, lives in Iraq, where she's staying home to protect the story bearers among us. Hi, this is Erin Wilson. I'm recording from my house in Iraq. When news of the novel coronavirus first began to leak from China, there wasn't much known about it other than the fact that it could be deadly. Many of those who contracted the virus and died we were hearing were older people, older people. Imagine that with air quotes. By that, I mean folks over 55 years old. They are a precious resource everywhere, but especially in Iraq. Decades of war and violence, political unrest, which led to starvation and a medical system slow to develop because of instability. This has all had devastating ramifications for Iraq's population. Today, the median age in Iraq is just 21 years old. Nearly 60% of the population is under the age of 24. So what about Iraq's older people, those 55 and older? Somehow they survived waves of suffering throughout their lifetimes. And today they represent just 8% of the population. Iraq has lost so many of its story bearers to war its history keepers, its community builders, its culture preservers, its hard-won wisdom sharers, gone because of violence. I stay home to protect those who survived, to protect their role in society, to protect their precious stories. Some, particularly those in Iraq, might say it's a duty to protect them. For me, it's a privilege. Zachariah Thrasher is a program officer for Syria, and he's staying home for some of the most vulnerable to COVID-19, the refugees and families he serves every day. There's no social distancing when you're a refugee or an asylum seeker, when you're stuck in a shelter or a detention center. At the time of this recording, there are only 57 public hospitals fully functioning in Syria. And there are only a couple laboratories nationally designated to test for COVID-19. With the threat of coronavirus, Syria has recently allowed medical students who haven't completed school to start providing medical care. In the northeast Syria, occupying Turkish forces have repeatedly cut off water to almost half a million people. How do you cope with the basic challenges of living day to day, much less washing your hands for 20 seconds? In addition to crowded refugee camps, the virus would be deadly in detainment centers and prisons. Here, inmates are even more crowded than refugee camps, living in squalid conditions. For those who already had very little, whose access to health care and food was already limited, coronavirus creates even more challenges. For those still fleeing violence in Idlib, Syria, for those who daily worry how they'll feed their family, COVID-19 is not even their greatest worry. But if COVID-19 would strike their camp, 
it would spread fast. Testing would be barely available, and healthcare workers could not cope. COVID-19 has changed all of our lives, but for the most vulnerable, for those who have spent the past few years on the run for their lives, for those without access to grocery stores or hospitals who already struggled to find day labor or to earn an income, this virus is another devastation on top of so many others. Charlene Winfred, whose stories and videos you've probably seen on our social media feeds, normally works from Iraq, but for now, she's home in Singapore with her elderly mom. I came back to my mother's home in Singapore as COVID-19 hit Iraq. I'm lucky. I come from a place where healthcare is world standard and the government response rapid and competent. This is absolutely a privilege and one I'm weakening for with gratitude right now. My respiratory system is pretty well compromised. Asthma, bronchitis, pneumonia, I've had them all and some multiple times. So respiratory illnesses hit me pretty hard. COVID-19's threat of pneumonia to those with underlying health issues is pretty much a guarantee for me if I were to be infected. My mom's flat's pretty small by American standards, around 700 square feet or 70 square meters. Although this is normally plenty of room for us both. When I first returned from Iraq, I chose to self-isolate for the requisite 14 days to make sure that I was symptom-free. And what is otherwise a roomy space for two people turned out to be too tight for keeping the regulations six feet from each other at all times. This was a big challenge, especially in shared spaces like the kitchen when she and I are home all day. The part of the suburb where I live is 30 or 40 years old, so its population of elderly, 65 years or older, is very high. In my floor of the apartment block we live in, 9 out of 10 households have at least one member above the age of 65, and this includes my own. Mum is 70. So if I get hit by the virus, I know I'll go down pretty hard. But I have enough confidence in my country's healthcare system and my relative youth to rate my chances of recovery pretty highly. Older people though, all of the research and analysis about the virus causing this pandemic suggests that their chance of recovery isn't as good as my own, especially if their health isn't great. As countries struggle to allocate ventilator and intensive care resources to burgeoning number of COVID-19 cases, doctors are increasingly having to choose who to give these resources to. Now, when it comes to these choices, one trend emerges globally. If medical staff have to choose between a younger person and an older one, it's the older one that loses out. That older person could be any one of my neighbours, the people who have been a part of my parents' life for well over 20 years, or it could be my mother. That is a terrible thought every single time. I can't control if mum or any of the neighbours pick up this virus from anyone or anywhere else. But what I do have control of is how well I protect myself from picking it up. Because that's inevitably protecting my mum's life and that of my community too. Finally, Kayla Craig, who you might also recognize from this podcast, is staying home because she doesn't have to imagine what it's like for a respiratory virus to threaten the lives of those most precious to her. Just one year ago, a respiratory virus attacked my three-year-old daughter, Eliza. The virus quickly turned into pneumonia, life-threatening sepsis, and even respiratory failure. I still hear the monitors beeping and the machines whirring, but most of all, I hear the silent screaming of my own fears and thoughts. I still see the moment when she was intubated, the exact sliver of time when her lungs were too weak for a ventilator, 
and she needed to be placed on an oscillator, a machine that shook her tiny body as her lungs were artificially filled with air. I don't wish that experience on anyone. After a long month full of care and compassion from doctors and nurses and staff and life-saving medicine and machines and blood products, my daughter came home. I finally felt like I could breathe again too. She is happy and healthy. I don't take that for granted. When you stay home, you stay home not only for Eliza, but for millions of others like her who are immunocompromised too. Many have invisible illnesses that make their bodies so much more prone to becoming dangerously ill by COVID-19. My son Joseph is also one of those people. He has sickle cell anemia, a blood disorder. A sickness can quickly become life-threatening as blood flow to his vital organs can become blocked. Ordinary viruses have brought him to the ER many more times than I can count. And already in his young life, he has taken a ride in the ambulance and needed life-saving blood. When you stay home, you protect yourself, which in turn protects the most vulnerable. COVID-19 isn't something they can recover from at home. It means hospitalization, medical machines, and relying on an already overloaded healthcare system. For many, the gap between health and near death is precariously small. They don't have the luxury of assuming their body would easily fight the virus. We are staying home, not just for ourselves, but for each other, for those in our families and our homes, for those in our neighborhoods and our communities, for those across oceans and time zones, those we've never met but who deserve a chance at health, at life, at a future. We're sacrificing a lot right now, and it's okay to acknowledge that, to feel the pain of that. But let's also remember who we are sacrificing for and why, because their lives are worth more than a booming economy. We are staying at home because we belong to each other. Now, more than ever, we know it and we can live it. Love Anyway is a podcast by Preemptive Love. It's written and produced by Aaron Wilson, Kayla Craig, and me, Ben Irwin. Sean Gabrielson is our audio editor. Skip Matheny is Preemptive Love's director of digital. Executive producers are Jeremy Courtney, Jessica Courtney, and J.R. Pershaw. The narration for this episode was written by Kim Mack. Hey, it's Kayla again, and I just wanted to pop in one more time because I wanted to let you know that there's one more thing you can do to protect the vulnerable during the COVID-19 pandemic. You can give to support our work providing food, medicine, and jobs in Syria, Iraq, Mexico, and Venezuela. We are committed to achieve one goal in this crisis. No one starves in quarantine. That means no one dies for lack of medicine. No one loses the chance to work. So when you give, please know that you make another future possible after COVID. Go to preemptivelove.org to donate now.